How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Dead Jester Productions podcast, episode number 166. I'm your host, Josh or Jay Moskers, joined this week by special guest Michael Callahan of Where We Go Next. Thank you for being here. Very well, thank you so much for having me, Josh. Uh, thank you for being here. And uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about your show and what you have doing over there? Sure. I'm the host of the Where We Go Next podcast. The plug would be uh, it's in depth conversations with accomplished guests about fascinating topics. Uh, Guests of the show have included everyone from investigative journalists to filmmakers, scientists, best-selling authors, comedians, a presidential campaign manager, social and political advocates, tech entrepreneurs, CEOs, and pretty much anything under the sun. I have a a wide variety of interests, and I'm driven by curiosity, so I'm always grateful when I'm able to have people on who I can learn something from. I have a question actually before we start then you mentioned the the political campaign uh manager. Have you ever had a concern about having like a political related to- uh guest on your show for fear of like dividing your audience perhaps? No. Um I no? think that you can talk about pretty much any topic as long as you talk about it from a place of understanding and empathy. And that was mm-hmm. that's actually a core tenet of my show. The first couple dozen episodes actually were mostly revolving around issues of identity, race, culture, society, and politics. But mm-hmm. the reason I started the show is I thought that the conversations we were having about those topics at a societal and national level were deeply unsatisfying for me. I feel like we have turned each other into kind of um, caricatures of, of what yeah. we actually are, right? We don't look at each other oftentimes on a national level as individuals with a complex history and understanding of each other's beliefs. Rather, we kind of uh, we paint each other as either heroes or monsters in like this epic battle to win or lose the fate of humanity, quote unquote. And I think mm-hmm. what that does is flatten all of us and, and makes life so much less interesting. So I've talked about, um, quote unquote, controversial topics, things like yeah. race, religion, politics, sex mm-hmm. and gender, et cetera. But I, I try to come at it from a place of understanding. I have my mm-hmm. views on topics, but I try to be mindful to bring in guests from a, a, like across the spectrum of uh, something like politics yeah. and then just meet them where they are rather than where I want them to be. I think a mm-hmm. lot of conflict around these issues comes when we try to force people into boxes or we force them to see the world the way that we see it. And I think that ultimately that's a loss. We should We should use conversations like this as an opportunity to learn from one another, even when we, and especially when we disagree. I like it. Yeah, we've we've covered a number of political topics on the show. We haven't had a, like a specific like political uh, guest on the show, but uh, we'd have people. I mean, longtime listeners know exactly like where most of my ideas fall in line, so to speak. Uh, but I had one. Per- it was a weird scenario. I, the re- main reason I asked too is I had somebody reach out to me at one point. Uh, th- oddly enough, through the website, like I get we get a lot of like comments and stuff through our website with the uh, you can enter the form and contact us and it comes directly through an email to me. And uh, I had someone do that, you know, saying like, Oh, I'd like to be a guest on your show. This is my background. And I looked into them and I don't want to dox them too much or anything like that, but they were uh, a, a political, you know, like a politician, I guess is, they were an actual politician. They were, you know, representing like a district or whatever. I forget exactly what level they were at, but uh, they had some, uh, uh, issues shall we say where they got into like legal trouble surrounding some stuff and uh it was a, a whole conundrum and i was like okay it'd be interesting to talk to this person and at times like i look back and think like they just never followed up with me at times i think back and think oh it's a missed opportunity 
But also at times I'm like, all right, I'm sort of relieved that I didn't have to sit here and cover the controversial issues with this person who is going to have like a dead set mindset on it as well. Uh, not that I want to sit here and argue with them, but I think you, you understand what I'm saying with the you know, back and forth about it, especially since they got in trouble over a lot of it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I think as a host personally, I'm mm-hmm. really intentional with the topics I pursue and the guests I bring on. Specifically, yeah. I need to I need to be able to find a way in for myself to talk to that person, right? Mm-hmm. I've had guests approach me or people approach me um, on behalf of potential guests and offer yeah, yeah, be like, yeah, hey, would you like to speak with this person, et cetera? And some mm-hmm. of these folks are like incredibly accomplished, right? Like mm-hmm. th- there is nothing in their biography that would um, not be worthy, in my opinion, of having them as a guest on the podcast. But for me, mm-hmm. if I can't get interested and excited and find a way in, like narrative wise, um, mm-hmm. to talk to them, then I feel like I'd be wasting their time. So just as an example, to talk about the, the presidential campaign manager was a, a great guy by the name of Zach Grauman. He was the presidential campaign manager for Andrew Yang. And we we spent a lot of time talking about his book, Longshot. And the premise of the book was less about Andrew's politics and more how they took someone with no name recognition and mm-hmm. made them into a national political figure in the course of less than two years. That's yeah. interesting to me. We did mm-hmm. talk a little bit about politics, specifically how they were able to take some of Andrew's ideas and make them uh, more nationwide and, and get people to understand the value of, let's say, a universal basic income. But mm-hmm. we didn't really get in the weeds of whether a UBI is a good or a bad thing. Although personally, mm-hmm. I, I lean more towards like it being a positive thing and, than a negative, though I can understand why someone might be against it. But the conversation wasn't really about Andrew's policies. What it was, was how do you take someone with no political experience and someone with no name recognition outside of the tech space where Andrew was and make right. him into a nationally recognized political figure. And specifically, how could you use the system and the ideas that Zach and his team used to turn Andrew Yang into a national political figure? How could other political campaigns potentially use that those same tactics to do the same thing? Because I think regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, we can all agree that getting into politics, especially on a national level, is incredibly difficult. and. And mm-hmm. uh, if you're not incredibly wealthy or come from an, a pre-established family or don't have built-in name recognition because you're a celebrity or some such, that is very difficult to get to that level. And ultimately, I think that's bad for all of us. That's bad for politics if the average person yeah. can't participate in national politics. It is interesting because I looked into it uh, with the most recent midterm elections because I was like, what are the qualifications to be able to run for office? And I was like, okay, you know, I'm, you know, I'm approaching the age where I'm able to do it, you know, and I was like, I was looking into like the, the cost associated with it. I was like, all right, less likely, but okay. <laughs> and then I think for president, I think you have to raise like certain amounts of money over a certain number of states as well, which obviously I'm not looking at doing anything like that. But uh, it was interesting to me, like you have to ra- like the idea that you have to raise money to be able to run for office is weird to me. I understand like it shows that you're garnering, you know, people are, are, supporting you but it is interesting to me that having money is a prerequisite to being allowed to run for office i agree there's something anti-democratic about it mm-hmm. i don't know but uh yeah no it's it is interesting uh, like, like you said you didn't cover the actual politics of it and we i guess we typically don't really when we have political conversations on here it's not going into the depth you know into the weeds of like is this a good thing is this a bad thing 
but we do cover like the actual topics themselves. And uh, I guess we like the fine line of really making a mess out of it and just appreciating that it's a topic worth discussing more than anything. Um, I don't know. It's, it is what it is. I know we had a pre-show when we contacted, I laid out like a potential topic list, which is different from what we normally cover on here, which is more about just growing as a person and, uh, you know, turn, you know, turning from, you know, high school or college kid into an actual full-fledged adult and taking care of yourself and things like that. I thought it'd be interesting because you've talked to so many different people, uh, especially in the professional sphere. Um, if we could kind of go over a lot of like uh, what it means to step out of your shell and really put one or two feet forward into like an actual career as opposed to just figuring it out for yourself. Um, I guess the, the question I have first then is what got you started with where we go next and how did you think to yourself, I want to do this. This is how I'm going to go about doing it. Well, when I started the podcast in 2020, there were a couple of factors that led to me taking the leap to publishing the first episode. Mm-hmm. Over the previous couple of years, I'd say maybe even four or five years, starting around 2015, 2016, I was noticing that the way that we as a nation, like on a nationwide level, we're discussing, I think, really important and critical issues around things mm-hmm. like culture, race, identity, politics in general. Um, it felt like the strictures around how we could discuss those ideas were getting tighter and tighter. And the realm of acceptable discourse um, was, or the window of acceptable, acceptable, acceptable discourse was um, getting smaller. And I think that could apply whether you're liberal, conservative, or somewhere in between. I just noticed it among my group of friends. And I could tell, I'm more on the liberal liberal end. I live here in Los Angeles, so pretty much my entire Mm -hmm. friend group is liberal. And I was noticing that that there was not as much of a space for disagreement, Uh, even among people who really, on the broader scale, believed pretty much the same thing. People were Mm -hmm. even getting into like knockdown, drag out fights on places like Facebook and other social media sites about like really tiny minutiae um, about how policy should work or, or what people should believe about various topics from immigration to healthcare and so on. And people were just getting nastier and nastier. It wasn't just about having a disagreement about a topic, but, oh, you're a traitor or you're a bigot because you believe this, that, or the other thing. And I feel that you can have your principles about topics, but the best way in a, in a liberal society. And when I mean, and when I say that, I mean, small L liberal, like America as a nation is a liberal country in that we resolve our differences through the electoral process rather than through power games of, well, if you disagree with me, I'll kill you or take your village, right? A liberal mm-hmm. society requires people to resolve their differences through not only the ballot box, but through talking to one another so that we can figure out together as a nation what the best path forward is. And I noticed that the country as a whole seemed to be getting less liberal, regardless of whether you were conservative or progressive, let's say, I'll use progressive instead of liberal in this instance when talking about the left. Whether you're conservative or or progressive, I feel like the nation as a whole was getting less liberal in how they were able to discuss these important topics. So that had been on my mind for some time, and I had been thinking about starting a podcast about it, but I think through a combination of anxiety, not really believing in myself, and procrastination, which I think is a a subset of a lack of belief in oneself, um, I just kept putting it off. And then the pandemic hit 
and I think this is probably true for a lot of people who, who mm-hmm. picked up hobbies during 2020, whether it was bread baking, podcasting, or otherwise, I was home alone with pretty much just my dog, Charlie, and I'm an extrovert by nature, and I was getting very bored and lonely. And I thought, you know, I, I don't have much going on. I'm a freelancer, and the first few months of the, of the pandemic were really rough um, because of what I do specifically as a freelancer. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided, you know what? If not now, when? Right. If if I'm actually serious about wanting to do this and wanting to have better conversations about topics that matter, even if it just helps me, right? Like even if it's just therapeutic for me to be able to have more holistic conversations about these topics, I need to put up or shut up. And so I used that opportunity because of the pandemic to finally go for it. And I'm really glad that I did because I because what I found along the way, and I'd love to pick your brain about this, Josh, as a fellow okay. podcaster, what I found along the way was that the act of doing, you know, the verb, the verb of doing was intensely therapeutic in and of itself and helped me deal with a lot of the things that had been worrying me and troubling me over the past several years, depression that I'd been struggling with, anxiety, feelings of self-doubt and insecurity. A lot of that stuff was um, ameliorated by the act of doing the podcast. And what I realized, again, I can't believe it took me until my 30s to realize this, Josh, was that (laughs) it's incredibly important to have a hobby that isn't pure fun, that requires a lot of work that you don't get paid for, but that isn't your job. And then having something that you have to just put time into over and over again, that is actually quite a lot of work, um, is a joy and rewarded in and of itself. And I learned that through podcasting. No, I, I definitely agree. We, uh, we started our whole brand right at the very beginning of 2020. Uh, I mean, we, I, I had done prep work leading into 20, I probably started September of 2019. And a lot of it was just behind the scenes stuff of getting the logos made up, building the website, making sure I had all the social media channels with the same name. Uh, and uh, just, you know, really getting all the fundamentals in place to, to launch everything at once. Um, but you were saying like how it's a lot of work, but it's still rewarding. Definitely. I mean, it. I I'm very much a creative person in that I like being able to make something. Uh, I like being able to put in a lot of effort and then see the the result, you know. And so that's that's part of what I I really enjoy doing with the podcast is, yes, it's time consuming. Like, I mean, first sitting down and talking for like roughly an hour, uh, you know, it's it, that's one thing. But then actually going back and editing it, trying to promote it while working, you know, I'm booking other guests, uh, trying to get other projects up and going you know, working on all the back end sort of stuff. But when you see the result, it is incredibly rewarding knowing, you know, I put the effort into it. I'm seeing the result. I was able to do this on my own self-taught, you know, it's, it is super rewarding and I like doing that. And it's the same thing with, you know, I do a lot of writing, uh, and sitting down and thinking, ah, I really, I really want to get something with this done today. And then, you know, an hour or two goes by and I see, oh, these are, I've written this number of pages of, you know, of stuff and uh, being like, oh, I have like a tangible result from my, my efforts. That's the sort of thing I, I thoroughly enjoy. Uh, and so it's, yeah, that's, I agree. Yes. I think there's something especially rewarding about doing something regularly, doing something on a mm-hmm. regular basis. And the, the fact that I have to hit a deadline, that you have to hit a deadline every single week mm-hmm. or every other week in my case, um, episode after episode, has been really therapeutic for me, right? Um, yeah. Because of the regularity. I'm a procrastinator by nature. 
And if I didn't mm-hmm. keep myself to this schedule, I would probably let it fall by the wayside and I would probably become less happy and, um, and less content as a result if I didn't have to keep to that deadline. So in some ways, I, I, I kind of have to box myself in to a schedule, um, <laughs> even if I don't want to, because I know that yeah. the long-term reward will be better than the short-term gain that I might get from just tossing it aside for a month. Mm-hmm. Part of it too, like you, you mentioned, like, uh, you know, it's setting the schedule every week after week after week, but it's, even though I'm in the general scheme of things, doing the same thing every week, you know, sitting down, talking to somebody, uploading it, editing it. It's a different experience every time in that, you know, it's different conversations, different guests, different people. It's, it's a unique experience every time, even though it's essentially the same process every time, but I thoroughly enjoy the, the uniqueness of each conversation. Yes. Same. Yeah. It, although, you know, each other week in my case, I'm technically recording and releasing a podcast, which is, uh, you know, every episode is an episode of the podcast, so it can seem like the same thing. Mm-hmm. One episode might be talking with a nuclear engineer about nuclear power. The next episode, I could be talking with a scientist out of UCSF about the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines. Mm-hmm. An episode after that, I could be talking with a comedian about the secret to great stand-up, right? And so for every episode that um, I prepare for, I have to delve into an entirely different area of expertise and try to learn at least enough that I can ask the guest interesting questions. Because I'm sure, yeah. as you know, with this with this podcast, the last thing that I want to do after someone is gracious enough to agree to come on the show, when they could be doing literally anything else, that's something that mm-hmm. I always try and keep in mind. Like, time is so precious, and the older I get, the more I realize how precious it is. It's like the one, it's one of the few resources in life we cannot make more of. <laughs> we only lose it. It's like a car that once it drives off the lot begins to depreciate. It's the same thing with time. <laughs> and, and so when someone agrees for free to come on the show, when they could be doing anything else, I mean, they could sit on their couch and stare at the wall rather than come on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always try in my prep to make sure that I earn that time. Um, and some, and I, and, and through trying not to take it for granted, I try and push myself and, and along the way, I, I learn a lot, you know, in order to mm-hmm. be a good host, in my opinion, you have to study what the guest is into in order to ask good questions. And in that process, you end up learning quite a bit. For sure. Yeah. It, there have definitely been times where I feel like I've let myself down where I was like, I don't think I, I directed the conversation super well. I don't think the questions I asked were very good. Uh, like even going into it, I thought, oh, I, I, you know, I have a game plan. You know, I, I have uh, an idea of where I want to go with this. But then just in the course of the conversation itself, it goes a bit astray from what I had originally intended. And then I kind of lose focus, I guess. I'm not sure. And it just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I get disappointed at times, but I've thoroughly appreciated all the opportunities I've had with talking with all these different people and all these different, you know, career paths and industries and things like that. And it's, it's incredibly rewarding to have learned from all these people, all the different things that they've had to to bring to the table and explain and you know, the stories they can tell it's, it's super rewarding. I know what that disappointment is like. And I think that feeling Mm -hmm. that disappointment is totally natural and okay to feel. I think the best way to make that disappointment productive is to try and learn something from it. You know, whenever I've been disappointed in myself as a host or wish that I had done more or wish that I'd quote unquote stayed to my outline or stayed on track rather than let the conversation meander into places that might've been less interesting than had I stayed to my outline. You know, I let myself 
dwell in the disappointment for maybe a couple hours, right? But then I try and take that disappointment and find a lesson within it so that I try not to repeat the same mistake that I made in future episodes. And so from that, like I think my past self, you know, maybe a few years ago would have carried that disappointment a lot harder, right? Like they would have come with me for a, a much more extended period of time, weeks or months, right? I would have dwelled on it for a very long time. But I think that ultimately, um, that's a kind of self-harm. Like when you hold on to disappointment for like an extended period of time, um, you're, you're really hurting yourself in a way that is useless. But if you take that disappointment and turn it into a lesson that you can learn from, then I think that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a huge learning experience. Like, I don't think I've grown more in the, I've, in the last two, three years, I've grown more in those last three years than I did all the previous years combined. I feel like it's, I've changed so much as a person since then. One, because it's just, a. I think not in everybody, but in a lot of people, I think there's a hesitancy to really branch out and talk to people that you wouldn't otherwise communicate with. Right. I think you can walk down the street, uh, and, uh, you know, see somebody. And I think a lot of people do this subconsciously where they immediately judge in the back of their mind. That's not somebody I would, you know, normally communicate with or sit down and talk with. You look at their clothes, you look at like, you know, just their general appearance and you make a, you know, a, idea in your mind of oh i'm making a complete guess as to who this type of person is and they're not the type of person i would normally associate with or talk with and that all gets kind of thrown out the window with podcasting you know i'm reaching out to all sorts of different people all sorts of different people are reaching out to me getting them on the show and it really throws a lot of those prejudices out the window and i've talked to so many people i probably normally wouldn't have talked to quite frankly and it really helps bring that guard down of you know, um, you know, concern of maybe, you know, who would I be interested in talking to this person? Would I feel nervous? Would I feel kind of out of place? Because there's definitely guests we've had on where it's like, I am so far out of my comfort zone that I have no idea where to even direct the conversation. But it's, it is such a learning uh, experience. And uh, like I said, it, it's made me more empathetic uh, just to people in general. It's made me more open-minded with a lot of things. And I think it's, I don't know. It's been really help, healthy, I think, being able to talk to people and kind of vent to myself as well. Yes. Well, I think exposure is the antidote to ignorance, right? Or to fear, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you expose yourself to something, you learn more about it and it becomes less scary. You know, it's the it's the antidote to to bigotry, to prejudice, to all sorts of things, just exposing oneself to something, whether it's another yeah. person, another group of people, an activity, et cetera. I think that like we can build, like looping it back to things like anxiety and depression, we can build like demons in our mind that aren't really mm -hmm. actually true. And they can just, they grow because we don't confront whatever the thing is that is actually scaring us. But it's like, you see the shadow of an elephant on the wall and then you actually turn the corner and it's actually a mouse, right? But the shadow is so big because the mouse is, you know, really, you know, far away from the or close to the wall. And so it's casting a very large shadow, but the shadow is, you know, it's nothing. It's just a, it's a figment mm -hmm. in your mind. Um, you know, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask a couple questions about this podcast. Sure. Um, something novel about it that I haven't seen done anywhere else is that 
you're telling this continuous story in the fantasy genre unrelated to mm-hmm. the actual audio recordings themselves in the show notes of every episode. So uh, from the show notes of episode one of this podcast from February 26, 2020, you wrote, quote, we introduce our heroes as they embark on their journey. They discuss gaming, verbal throwdowns, potential 1v1s, and their goals for the podcast, end quote. And the first mm-hmm. entry in this story is probably both the shortest and the most literal. Each yeah. week, the story expands to include a larger world and ever more diverse lineup of characters. I, I think I counted a, a warrior, a jester, a swordsman, a healer, a bard, and of course, many others. And, and I noticed that the passages become more immersive and detailed as you go along. For instance, mm-hmm. from episode 126, quote, the heroes say goodbye to the guard and continue on the path out of town. They pass the remnants of a few old carriages that had broken down either due to bandit attacks or simply given up due to weathering. Birds picked the skeletal remains of animals that had been chased out of town, scattering as the heroes drew closer. While the way they adventured into the village from that from from was manly mainly forested, the path they were on now quickly changed into swampland. The ground grew muddier, and a foul stench hung over their heads. The swordsman hero had anticipated this and had acquired some cloth from the town. They covered their faces to avoid breathing in the smell and trudged onward, end quote. So I, I guess my question to you, Josh, is what inspired you to tell this ongoing fantastical story in the show notes of the podcast? And what have you learned about the art of storytelling as you've written what basically amounts to a small novel over the last three years? Mm-hmm. First of all, I appreciate that you went back and actually looked at the descriptions. Uh, it It is entertaining. We've, we talked about this, I think, four episodes ago, maybe, with uh, Alexander Wolf from uh, the Inc. podcast. And uh, he and I were going more in depth on like the psychology behind what I'm writing. Um, but the grand thing, the grand scheme of it is when we started out, I, you know, I like writing in general. I've been writing since I was like, uh, what is second grade? Seven, I think. I think seven years old, six or seven. And, uh, you know, I've been I've been writing like short stories, so to speak. Uh, you, you can imagine the uh, literacy level of a seven year old, but. You know, it's something I've always enjoyed doing. And uh, even when we started the podcast, you know, I, I didn't know then, you know, how in-depth I was eventually going to get with it. Um, but I liked having the the fantasy theme to it to an extent. And the jesters weaved into it, mainly because that's our, our brand. So I, I wanted to weave in something uh, related to that. And I thought this is the perfect place for me to weave in the fantasy, you know, theme and the genre into the descriptions. And over time, I just, I got really invested in the actual story of it. I created new you know concepts for how I can incorporate it into the podcast itself. And as it's gone on, uh, it's like you've said before, it's, uh, it's sort of therapeutic being able to write these more in-depth descriptions every week, but also because I, you know, I just like telling a story and to be able to connect all the podcasts, you know, they have diff- every episode's a different guest, different conversations. But that underlying thread connecting all of it is one, it's the same podcast, but also the storyline running, you know, underneath all of it in the descriptions. And uh, just it's it's been super exciting for me to be able to continue that story on. I've attempted to go out and uh, uh, essentially copy and paste all the descriptions and make a short story out of it, like a compilation out of it. So people don't have to click through the descriptions, but it's more work than people would think making it a uh, more readable narrative as opposed to how it is now. Cause obviously if you've gone back and read it, you know, there's no conversations happening. It's all essentially like some, you know, it's an observer reporting on what they see as opposed to, 
you know, an actual, you know, novel style of writing. Yes. No, I, I totally understand. And I think you and I fell in love with writing around the same time. Maybe I was a few years before you. My first memory of storytelling, I was about three years old. Um, I was on the floor of my parents' new townhouse um, in Pleasanton, California, where I grew up. And uh, I remember it very clearly. I think it's the first memory I have, period. It's um, my father and I sitting on the newly carpeted floor. There were boxes from moving still kind of strewn about the living room. And we were sitting on the floor and my dad had his typewriter out. This is the eighties, but you know, I think he even had a computer, but he, he had his typewriter out and I would dictate stories to him about Superman, Batman, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And he would write them out as I dictated them. And then he would read them back to me. And I remember how I felt hearing my father read my stories back because <laughs> hearing your hero, which my father was to me at that time and still, and still is in so many ways, Hearing your hero read your own words back to you is a type of validation as a child that stays with you. And that's how I fell in love with storytelling. And growing up, I, I kept writing short stories every single year. I was lucky enough to get a couple published, um, did some professional writing as a teenager. And that's also what kind of kickstarted my love of filmmaking and what brought me to Los Angeles and went to film school. And, and now I work in, in filmmaking and marketing. But it all started on the carpeted floor of my parents' townhome in the 80s, all because my dad um, took the time to treat my stories seriously and read them mm -hmm. back to me. Yeah, I had a similar experience with my aunt, actually. I would, we'd go down, this is a number of years later now, but we'd go down to visit them when the, they still lived in North Carolina. And people that listen to the show consistently know that I talk about spending a lot of time in the Raleigh, Durham era uh, growing up during the summers. We'd go, on to, we'd go down to visit them and I'd, I'd spend a lot of the vacation time and I had my, my blue binder, like a one inch thick blue binder filled all the way up with, uh, you know, paper and I'd be sitting there writing and writing and writing. And, uh, you know, I remember finishing it while I was down there and they said, all right, when we come back up to visit you next, uh, I want you to, to read it to us. I was like, perfect. And they came up to visit my aunt and I went out to this cafe and I sat down and it was about a it was a hundred pages roughly. I think it's like ninety eight pages of you know just lined paper. I don't know what that would translate to in actual printed pages, but it was a lot of writing for me as a child. And I sat down. We were in this cafe, and I read the entire thing to her over a few hours. And it was just her like giving me little pointers and things like that. She does a lot of writing as well, and uh, just watching her react to it and you know have her feedback was really important to me because it it let me know where I was at as a, a writer, but I'd never gotten feedback on any of my work before, you know, outside of school, obviously, but anything like I made myself, I'd never gotten any feedback on. So that was really uh, a novel experience. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's, it's so instructive. There are inflection points in our lives, especially as children, where even mm -hmm. just the slightest nudge of encouragement from someone that matters can make all the difference. Yeah. It, I think it's that thing of where, in my well, at least in my experience, I guess this it was something I'm passionate about, and knowing that there's somebody I know that's also passionate about it, providing that support into it. Like my father is very much into photography and film. I also, I mean, I'm not as big on on it as he is, but I like creating like YouTube content, things like that. Uh, but I like film. I have a I don't know, 
half about eight to ten really old school brownie box cameras and things I like to uh, collect and we have sh- we shoot film on them and things like that and having again someone that's interested in the same thing as me and then being fortunate enough to have them as you know not only in my family but as my dad it's very cool being able to have that person around to teach me and I have the interest in it he has the resources to you know draw out the information required to expand upon those interests which is very fortunate yeah, that really is. That's wonderful. Um, you, did you have a, a different question as well? I, you'd mentioned before you were, you were going to ask me a couple of questions. I don't know if they were all wrapped up in the same thing about the uh, podcast descriptions or not. What have you learned about yourself through the act of hosting the show? Uh, I guess it's just I'm more curious than I originally thought, I suppose. You know, I I like talking to people. I, I just like communicating with people in general. Uh, it's weird because like uh, twenty, the end of 2018, November of 2018, I started my current job. And by current job, I mean the job I'm doing as we record this. By the time this episode comes out, I'll be in my new job. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a sales position. I have no experience in sales. And I was like, okay, this is, this is a little nerve wracking. Uh, I have to go out and convince people to buy a product. And, uh, you know, so it was a weird experience. But then that translated into marketing my own podcast and my brand to get guests on and really sell the the show itself. And just being able to to sit down and have a conversation with a person or people and not feel concerned in the slightest as far as like stage fright, so to speak, even though we're on an audio recording. But back in the day, even four or five years ago, I, I was doing podcasts, but it was with friends. I don't know that I would have had the uh, experience or the mindset to reach out and get guests on and then sit down and talk to them in a, co- in a lengthier conversation without being incredibly nervous. Uh, so learning how to actually communicate with people more effectively, not having that nervousness and then just being confident to back myself up and stand by my work. Uh, you know, I, we talked about it recently on an episode about standing by your work uh, about you know, maybe someone wants to come in and they have a different idea for what they want to do. Uh, and then just saying, no, this is, this is what I want to accomplish. It's, you know, it's my work. I'm happy to collaborate on it, but I, I'm standing by my original vision for it. And that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah. Even not just with the the brand here with the Dedris Productions, but in my actual life, you know, standing by my own work and, and saying, this is what I want to do. You know, these are my goals this is why I'm doing whatever it is I'm trying to do that sort of thing. Yeah. There's a lot of power in making a choice like that. Mm-hmm. I guess my yeah, last I, question will oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say it, it goes back to like switching careers. You know, by the time this episode out, I've been working my new job for about a month. It wasn't an easy decision, you know, like growing up you know, when, I, when I'm out of high, fresh out of high school, going to college. Yeah. You feel like, there's a level of responsibility, but it's, it, I mean, in my case, at least I was sort of carefree about it. You know, I thought, Oh, I've got, I'm 18 years old, 19 years old. You know, I've got all the time in the world to figure out what I want to do with myself, what my career trajectory is going to be, you know? And I, I, I wasn't really concerned with not, I wasn't, it's not that I wasn't concerned about losing a job, getting fired. Cause I did my, I've always done my work. I've always been a good employee, but 
it there was always that carefree attitude about it so to speak whereas now i'm very i'm very much more focused where you know the decisions i make are centered around all right how is this going to help me how is this going to affect my family you know the people i take care of you know it's it's a lot more in depth and a lot more uh, methodical as opposed to on a whim you know decision making and that that's really been the last like four to five years of my life has really been changing from that carefree attitude to I'm really thinking out, you know, is this the best decision I can make for my career trajectory? And will this benefit my family more than, you know, this alternate path, so to speak? Yeah, that all makes sense. What would you say has been, um, one of your best episodes as a host, not just an episode that you thought went well, but specifically an episode where you felt like you did an especially good job as a host in that role. Ooh, man, this is a, it's a tough question. I've recorded 166 episodes, so I always feel bad about not remembering anything in particular. I think really it's the, the ones where I, I don't have an episode specifically, but anytime we come away at the end of an episode and the guests thoroughly enjoyed themselves and they're happy and they had a good time, that that's where I feel like I've done the best job. Um, obviously, putting content out is for the listeners and the quote unquote fans, so to speak. But knowing that I was able to provide entertainment for the guest and that they had a good time is very, the most rewarding for me uh, because I know I've done my job in making them feel comfortable on the show, making them feel welcome and letting them have the time to talk and tell their stories. That's the most rewarding part uh, about all of it. And I feel like I've done my job most effectively if I've made it so the guest uh, feels like it was worth it. I think that's the closest I can get. I don't have a specific episode in particular, but. Uh, I still think that's a pretty good answer. Yeah, it it is super rewarding. I, don't, I mean, I'm sure you, I mean, you've been in the similar situations with all the guests you've had getting to the end of it and having the guests be like, Oh, it was great. I really enjoyed that. I'd love to come back. Like to me, that's super rewarding. Cause I'm like, perfect. I made a good impression. They had a fun time. That's the most valuable part of it to me. Yes, I agree. I think for me, what makes it a satisfying episode for me as a host, it's like a minor tweak on what you said. It's when I feel like I've asked them at least one question they've never been asked before. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll, I'll use a recent episode example. Um, there's a man by the name of Richard Reeves. Uh, he works for the Brookings Institution. Um, he's worked for governments in the UK and Canada, specifically on social inequality. And most mm -hmm. recently, he's written a book called Of Boys and Men, where he talks about the crisis that's happening in boys and men across Western societies about how they're specifically falling behind in everywhere from education, um, elementary, middle school, high school, college, to work-life balance, to economics, um, to quality of life, et cetera, and how so many young men seem to be aimless today. And the problem that I was trying to solve as a host once I was able to book him was that he's been on dozens of podcasts every, everywhere yeah. from you know, NPR to Sam Harris to Real Time with Bill Maher, like really huge, heavy hitting places, yeah. right? And so the, the trick was, is not only how do I make it feel like this has been worth his time, 
because I'm a mm-hmm. I'm a relatively small show compared to like let's say a Chris Williamson or a Bill Maher. But how do I make it feel not only like he's gotten something out of it, specifically that it doesn't feel like he just has to repeat the same talking points he's been doing over and over, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. When when you're talking to that many people um, and you're kind of yeah. on a circuit of podcasts, it's understandable and in my opinion necessary that you have uh, a certain like um, that you have lines or or facts or figures or or statements in response to questions that you're going to get often because um, not only does that kind of rehearsal make you sound better and 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 get your information across in a more economic and easy to understand fashion um, so that makes total sense to me but my challenge as a host was you know how do I not only onboard audience members who might not be familiar with Richard's work in a way where they can understand the scope of it but also yeah. make it so it's enjoyable for him as a guest. And how can I ask questions that maybe no one else has asked before? And mm-hmm. so like when that episode wrapped up, for instance, and we stopped recording and we were off mic, um, the fact that he said, you know, and I, I normally don't share this kind of information because it, it sounds immodest, but <laughs> since we're on the topic, like just yeah. the fact that he said, hey, you've asked me some questions no one has asked, mm-hmm. that to me, uh, is, is a huge reward because it, it, because I imagine that if you're on such a long circuit and have been on dozens of podcasts that you might not think that someone could, someone could bring up, uh, an angle to your work or ask you a question that's still relevant to your work that hadn't been asked. And so yeah. those are the ways in which I try and not only make it a challenge for myself, but always is very meaningful for me when a guest says something like that. Yeah, no, I, it, there is that fine line, I suppose, of you have the guests on for a purpose, right? And, you know, all these, you know, like you refer to the circuit, they all have the guests on, you know, for the same purpose, relatively speaking. He's promoting his book or the specific conversation he's trying to invoke with people. So they are pinned into a certain corner of having to cover that topic. I can see how it can be difficult to stay on the same topic for so long and yet still uh, draw out new information. It is a bit of a tightrope to walk. Yes, absolutely. And I think you'll relate to this as a storyteller. It's like there is, uh, that I guess famous line, there is no such thing as an original story, only an original Mm -hmm. take on an existing story. Uh, Depending on who you ask, there's, there's anywhere from 12 to 24 stories that can be told, um, in terms of the kinds of stories we can tell, like, you know, a, a doomed romance, a, uh, you know, brother versus brother conflict, right? Whether it's Cain and, Am- Cain and Abel or Romeo and Juliet, um, there are these certain um, prototypical stories that if you look throughout history, we're basically telling the same one to two dozen stories over and over again. Yeah. But how you can add something new to this, you know, rather short list of stories one can tell is to try and find a new angle on an old story. And I think very similarly, because I look at everything from a storytelling perspective. And so when I prepare for these podcasts, I usually have like a three act structure. I treat it like a story. And I think what is the interesting angle that I can take on a story that, you know, if we're looking at the interview as a story has been told many, many times. And I think Mm -hmm. that by focusing on the smaller details, um, I feel like small details can both get at something universal and can be a way to differentiate oneself from everyone else. Yeah. Honestly, one of my, my favorite parts of any episode that we do is when guests come on and start interviewing me. I find it super entertaining. 
from the stance of, oh, normally I'm hosting the show. I'm the one, reasonably so, trying to direct the conversation to keep it going because that's my my job as the host of the show. But I always love it when guests come on and start asking me questions about just not even about myself, just in general. If they say, oh, I have some I have a question, if maybe you have experience with it or things like this, you know, trying to get some information for themselves to use or whatever. It's that's always super fun to me is having the the tables turned, I suppose. It makes things interesting. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. There have been a couple of times when guests have done that. I, I, I guess I'm not. For, for me, when I'm when I'm hosting an episode, I'm very much in host mode, and any time mm-hmm. that the guest is a, is asking me about myself, I feel like we're burning time that I could be using <laughs> to ask about whatever topic I'm interested to learn from from them. It's not yeah. that I dislike when hosts ask me questions; it means that they're engaged in the conversation. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm not going to um, negate the emotion that's inherent in the ask. Right the the thing that's inherent in them asking about me or about the show is that they're intrigued, they're interested, they're engaged, which is good. That's what you yeah. want from a guest. But I can't help but think in the back of my mind, like I'd much rather be talking about your your area of expertise right now. I mean, every mm-hmm. once in a while I'll have like bonus episodes. I had one recently with recurring guest of the podcast, uh, Jay Shapiro. He's a yeah. a writer, filmmaker, and philosopher. He's, he's done several documentaries and we've become good friends. He's been on the podcast now uh, five times, four times officially as a guest, and then one time as this bonus Boxing Day episode. And specifically with that one, and why it's not numbered and why it's considered a bonus episode is it's it's different. It's it's not something where I brought him on specifically to talk about something to do with philosophy or one of his documentaries, but it was this fun day after Christmas episode in which we each exchanged a movie we, we wanted the other person to watch, and we yeah. reviewed the movies and it was a much more casual free-flowing chat and that allowed me to feel more comfortable taking on a host guest hybrid model whereas if it was purely an ep- a numbered episode of the podcast I would feel much less comfortable doing that just because I'm not in that mode does that make sense mm-hmm. to it, take nothing away but to take nothing away from how you feel about it but just in terms yeah. of how I kind of compartmentalize it in my brain it's something that's I guess a bit different from your approach. Yeah. Like I've, I've mentioned too, to guests a lot of times before they come on the show is I always definitely try to go a more conversational route than a, uh, a strict interview style. If that makes sense. You know, obviously we have the the topics as the, the background to help lead the conversation and steer the ship. If things seem to go astray and you know, the conversation is reaching a, uh, a thinned out sort of dead end. Um, but I've always found at least for what we do, it it's more about just sitting down with people we find interesting and that have interesting stories to tell and just letting them tell the story in more of a conversation. Uh, I think it helps the, the flow of the show a little bit more for us uh, just because of the, just because of the way our personalities work, you know, we're, we're very meandering at times anyway, uh, as I'm, I'm sure you've noticed this episode already. It, it just, it works with us you know, the, the, the way the, the flow of the conversation works to be a bit more open-ended. No, that's fantastic. I think the important mm-hmm. thing is is staying true to the the theme and feel of whatever that podcast or show is, right? Like mm-hmm. I, the kind of podcast I like listening to and the kind of podcast that I make are actually quite different. Like mm-hmm. when I'll listen to a podcast, and I'll be honest, ever since I started recording my own, I listen to way fewer podcasts than I used to. Um, but the kind of podcast that I'll listen to 
is usually these days I, li- I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts. Yeah. And by the nature of who's hosting them, whether it's, you know, a single comedian having on guests or two comedians who just uh, are co-hosts every single week, those are much more meandering and way more casual. And so there's mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, de- like even dead air or pauses or like ums and ahs and, you know, f- a lot more filler words and, and, and things can kind of hit dead ends and then pick back up and be more interesting. And I love it. You know, I've got it on the background and I, I listen to it in a much more casual manner. But as a host, I can't stand that. Like when I'm hosting the show, I'm always, and, and just from a storytelling perspective, I'm always thinking in the back of my mind, um, how, how am I adding value? How, or how is this episode adding value to anyone's life, right? There's like yeah. this, this creeping sense of a need for momentum that's in the back of my brain whenever I'm hosting, right? And I can even feel it like if I'm starting to talk a little too much or if I'm talking but my talking isn't getting us to another question. I can feel that little monkey in the back of my brain that's saying, go like push into the next realm of whatever you're going to talk about. (laughs) But I mean, that's not, I'm not, I don't think there's again, a good or a bad way to host a podcast. I think any kind of podcast is worthwhile Mm -hmm. as long as whoever the host of that show is knows what the show is. So if the show, if the show is a, a, a more quote unquote meandering or free flowing conversation, that's totally fine. If the show is a, a straight up, straightforward murder mystery, heavily scripted podcast, that's fine. It's just mm-hmm. being true to whatever the spirit of the show is. Yeah. Yeah. It, like I said, it's interesting. We've had I, ideas. We were going to do like a news based show where it was going to be, I, we never really laid it out entirely. We had, it was very much pre-production is where it ended up uh, being cut where it was going to be either weekly or biweekly. And it was going to be, like I said, news focused. We're going to be covering recent topics, but with our more laid back, goofy style. And that's sort of the underlying theme of a lot of our work. I mean, even reading a lot of the podcast descriptions, there are more serious episode descriptions that that I do. But in the end, it all circles back to the characters being kind of oddballs. You know, they're it's not super, super serious. And that's how our content is as well. It's not serious. It's goofy. It's whatever we enjoy making as opposed to whatever we think is going to be the most successful. I'd rather enjoy what I'm doing than feel like I'm doing something just to meet a a certain quota or, you know, whatever, a certain benchmark. That's, that's just not what brings me uh, enjoyment. Um, but that's part of, you know, the benefit of, being in charge of my own content, I guess, which is actually cycling back to sort of what I was going to, uh, one of the topics I'd written down for us originally was being your own boss. Is there anything that you've learned managing your own content and yourself? You mentioned you were, you do a lot of freelance work as well. Is there anything you learned doing that being in charge of yourself as opposed to working under other people maybe? As it relates to the podcast or what I do for a living? Yeah, no, the, the podcast in particular, like fully managing your own content, your work and being, having content that your voice is flowing through essentially. Uh, Ever since I hosted the podcast, it has made how I feel about the work I get paid for. It it has fundamentally changed my relationship to that work in that it's made it much easier if I have a really frustrating day at work. Because when, for instance, all I had was either my job or just the stuff I did for fun, you know, and mm-hmm. I didn't have that hobby that was actually, as you know, a lot of work and required a lot of discipline when all I had was either something purely fun, like playing video games or going to the movies or a museum or whatever, yeah. um, or work, 
um, a lot of my identity was much more wrapped up in the work that I was doing. And so when I would encounter something um, frustrating at work or I would be unhappy with how a project would turn out or how someone spoke to me or it, all those things would just land harder because so much of my identity was wrapped up in it. Whereas mm -hmm. now, because I have the podcast, which as you said, like I have way more control over mm -hmm. um, and I get to steer the ship and what direction that ship goes in. Um, when something happens at work that might be a little more frustrating, it's much easier to take it in stride because it's not everything that I am. I, I have a project that I'm proud of, that I am in mm -hmm. charge of, that um, that I take full ownership of. And so I, in a way, because I have complete agency over the podcast, it allows me to have a feeling of agency throughout my life. So even mm -hmm. if I might not have as much agency, let's say, at my workplace, because of course I'm getting paid to do a job, <laughs> I think having complete agency at your you know, at a company is insane. Like you, you are working as part of a larger group of people. You can't yeah. be a little tyrant walking around doing everything that you please that that's unhealthy. Right. But yeah. it, but having that, that, um, having that place via the podcast where I have so much more control, um, hmm. it allows me to feel way more chill when something maybe goes sideways at work, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, in a similar vein, like I, you know, the podcast, obviously there's a responsibility on me, self-imposed, obviously, uh, but to, to put out the content and it is, it might be the most consistent thing I've done is from as far as I can remember. I mean, every single Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern time, the new episode goes live, barring technical issues through our hosting platform, mind you, but that's only happened, I think, twice, um, and it was something that was out of my control. So I don't feel as bad for it. But I mean, every single Wednesday for three years, a little bit past that now, I've consistently been able to, to get the podcast together, get it uploaded and get everything taken care of. And I'm super proud of that. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned with, you know, you can't walk around the workplace being a little tyrant. Uh, it, it is interesting. Like I, I have the agency over our content and what we put out. Um, but it's definitely given me an appreciation for what it would be to be self-employed and be fully reliant upon myself. I realized how much work would need to go into it and how much responsibility would, would fall upon me to make sure I, you know, really get the work done I need to get done. Um, but it, it really helps me value my time a bit more. I think I have a, if I, I keep it, uh, on the, on my desk, I'm going to hang it up eventually. I have a check that I got from my employer, my previous employer, the time this episode comes out. It was a check for $15 uh, that they paid me uh, for about five and, a hour, five and a half hours worth of work. I got $15. And I felt like that was such a spit in the face. And so I didn't even, it's probably stupid of me to be honest, but I didn't even cash it. I felt like it was, it was such an insult. So I just held on to it. And uh, I keep it as like a reminder of like how much I value my time now. Now that I realize what it could, what it should actually be worth. Yes, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of power in understanding your self worth and mm -hmm. and accepting that your time is valuable and and yeah. and asserting that your time is valuable. And I think that um, that the environment that we're in, regardless of how strong our own um, 
sense of self and self-worth might be that the environment yeah. in, that you're in over time can poison your mind into mm-hmm. believing what other people are saying about you. You know, like I've, I've seen this happen to friends. It's happened to me where you're at a company and uh, over time through the things that uh, your managers or your bosses are telling you, you begin to value yourself less because they, va- they don't value you. They don't value yeah. you that much. And eventually kind of like being in a toxic relationship. If that person is repeatedly telling you that you're worthless or worthless mm-hmm. or that your time isn't valuable or that you're not valuable, you can eventually, regardless of how strong your stamina might be, begin to believe what they're saying. And yeah. sometimes you have to distance yourself from that environment, from those people to truly regain a sense of self. And I think that that it's always good to check back in on oneself. I think that's the power of therapy. I think that's the power mm-hmm. of having a close group of friends who can remind you of your worth. Um, because just being in an environment, um, whether it's cultural, religious, workplace, et cetera, um, that is distorting your own view of yourself, uh, a minor form of, and I know this term is thrown around a lot and I don't like overusing it, but it can be a minor form of gaslighting. I think mm-hmm. if you're in an environment that is doing that to you, it's not until you you quit that job or move on to another job or or leave that relationship yeah. or leave that group of friends that you truly realize that the story that you had been telling yourself or that had been told to you was false. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of it too is knowing what you're capable of and being willing to take the risk to grow as a person. Like I said, I was the, I was at my previous job for just over four and a half years, and it there was definitely that creeping sense of like complacency sitting setting in where it's like, all right, you know what? This is, I'm safe here. You know, I'm, this is a comfortable enough job. I'm making good money. But in the back of my mind too, the whole time is just, I can do better. You know, I can, I can be more of a person. I can do more for myself, provide more for my family, can make more of myself. Uh, you know, and like I said, the end goal for, is always self-employment for me. That's where I want to end up. And I knew if I stayed there, it was not going to happen. I know even at my new job, it's not going to, self-employment is not going to happen if I get complacent and just, you know, stick with the quote unquote monotony of day in, day out, just doing the work and continuing on. Uh, it, it requires a certain sense of, I need to keep making more of myself than I currently am. And, you know, one of the things I had done for myself, I got a, a day of page planner. So every page is literally like a, a day of the week for the, you know, that month, that week and everything. And I set goals for myself every day now, uh, you know, things I want to accomplish, things I, you know, if I don't mark it as, you know, put the check mark next to it as being completed, I'm not going to bed until it's done within reason. Uh, it, I strive to keep improving uh, so that I can reach my goal at the end of self-employment, providing a good life for myself and my family and the people I take care of. And uh, yeah, constantly putting the effort in is is the only way I'm going to do that. Yes. No, I think um, small and repeated um, consistent actions over time become, become really life-changing events. It's like building a habit, right? I mean, it's like teaching a kid to you know brush their teeth. You get them to do it once and it's like, you did it. Good job. Now in the morning, we're going to fight for it again. And you know they get used to it. And eventually, I mean, my, I have a little brother who's just turned 10. Uh, so it, a little, we're a little off that time period, but even, you know, watching him grow up, it was like, you got to brush your teeth tonight. Then in the morning, it's like, you got to you know, brush your teeth and we'd fight for him. And eventually he got tired of fighting us. So he would just do it himself. But 
he's built up the habit now, so he's just brushing his teeth. That's it's kind of the same principle, different scale of you know effort and and habit, but it's the same general principle of building up the habit. Yes, no, I totally understand. Um, one of the, the last things I wanted to touch on too, I'd, I'd mentioned with it was dealing with loss. Um, you know, the last three years, I've, like I said, I've grown probably more as a person than any other time in my life. Um, but it hasn't always been, uh, you know, happy. We've lost, I don't know how many different family members at this point, uh, just from heart conditions, COVID, uh, freak issues, things like that. Uh, it's, you know, just not only that, but just dealing with failures with the brand career-wise, you know, COVID really did a number on us as far as, you know, my actual job that we were impacted a lot by it. Um, what has your experience been? I guess I'll, I'll ask you about your brand because I don't want to force you to talk about your personal life if you don't want to, but like with your brand, what, if, how, what has your experience been like where maybe you've gone for something with the show and it hasn't panned out like you wanted it to? How have you bounced back from that and learned to, you know, move forward dealing with the negative experiences? Good question. Um, in episode 12 of the podcast, I had on Aisha Kambi. She's a, uh, a British woman, a fashion stylist and cultural commentator. And there was this wisdom that she shared in that episode uh, when reflecting on the death of her brother who died um, at, a, at a tragically young age in his 20s mm-hmm. and the transformative epiphany that was born out of that tragedy for her. Uh, to kind of paraphrase what she said, she said, if death doesn't teach us how to live, then to some degree it's in vain. And I mm. think that that goes for personal tragedies of all kinds. I think it's it's perfectly acceptable, I could even say healthy, to mourn a loss, the loss of mm-hmm. a job, a relationship, an opportunity, a life. Um, whatever it is that you've lost, it's okay to let yourself linger in the pain of it for a, for a time. But I think eventually you'll realize that there is so much to mine from tragedy, like so much to learn about yourself. If you, if you let yourself see the event through a lens of opportunity rather than one of loss, doesn't mean that the loss doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean the loss didn't happen. But I think that how we frame the stories we tell ourselves is, is actually more important than the things that happen to us. Like how we perceive the things that happen to us is more important than the events themselves. And so I think that tragedy can be an amazing engine of personal growth if we allow it to be. And at least that's that's a lesson that I've really tried to internalize over the last several years, not just because it, I've learned through the podcast about that from wonderful guests like Aisha, um, but also just um, through my own experiences and realizing that when I was in a place where I was constantly dwelling on a loss or obsessing over how, oh, I wish this would have gone a different way. If only this event in my life had turned out differently, then I would be this better person. Then I would be more whole. Then I would be less broken if Mm -hmm. things had gone this other way. And what I would find over time is that by spending so much, so many hours, days, weeks, years in that depressive state, wishing that things had gone differently, I was preventing myself from moving on and actually making a change. And Mm -hmm. so I would take that event, you know, like let's say an event that maybe lasted several days or weeks or months or like a bad relationship that might have even lasted several years. 
the longer that I was thinking about that past event, the longer I extended it. You know, it's mm -hmm. like if a, if a tragic event takes place in the course of a single day, but you think about it for months, that event really happened for months of time. The longer you dwell on it, the, the bigger you make it. And, um, yeah. and, and the more you hold yourself back from moving forward from it and gaining lessons from it. So that's something that I've been trying to internalize over the last several years. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, one of the things I noticed too is, uh, going back to like family passing away, you know, it, it, it is interesting seeing how different people react in certain ways. And it, it kind of, in some scenarios shows me like what that person valued in the the person that they lost not not to say that they didn't value them in other ways either but like you know they could you know the last memory with them could be talking about you know baseball or whatever you know and it's like oh they valued going to the baseball games with this family member and you know that's where they had a lot of their best moments and experiences together and then you know like i might talk to them about something different at the end because that's how we connected and seeing like how you know like when my, my girlfriend's father passed away and seeing her and her family react and, you know, the things they talked about right at the end while we were, you know, holding his hand and everything like that as he passed on, it was, it was, just, I don't know how to word it, but it was weird, you know, just seeing like the things they're saying to him as, as he passed on. And then, you know, I'm left there feeling like I need to be responsible to, you know, help take care of people now, you know, it's, you know, her brother's saying, you know, like, oh, I'm going to you know take care of the you know, your movie collection, you know, things he valued, uh, you know, it's the experiences he had with him was watching movies together all the time. And, uh, you know, he's like, I'm going to take care of that for you. You know, I'm going to, I forget what else he said, but my reaction was to tell him, you know, I'm going to take care of your family for you. And it was, it was, it I didn't realize it at the time, but it struck me, you know, days later or a week later. I don't remember. I was like, what a strange, uh, uh, difference in, you know, final words. It was, it was odd to me, but, you know, looking back at it and I was, I also see like where our priorities were at the time was, you know, just focusing on the, the times we had together. You know, a lot of my time with him was spent talking about, you know, his family. Cause you know, I'd only known him for three years at the time and, uh, you know, talking to him about his family and, uh, you know, taking care of, you know, his daughter, my girlfriend, and, uh, you know, his wife and, uh, you know, that's just kind of where my mind went at the time was ensuring him, giving him that peace of mind, knowing they were in good hands. And, uh, it, I don't know, it's just weird to me, the different places people's minds will go to when they're coming to a, a final conclusion. Yes. No, I, I, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I don't have as much experience with the um, immediate death of a loved one. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think finality can cause our minds to go to a lot of interesting and specific places. And it's, and it's um, I think there's a lot to be gained from seeing how different people deal with the same event, the event of death, you know, because it's like that uh, <laughs> well-worn phrase, right? Like the only two mm -hmm. certain things in life are death and taxes, right? You're going to pay yeah. taxes and you're going to die. And so um, I think the, the, the way that my mind has changed around events like this, again, whether it's uh, a literal death or the, the metaphorical death of something, whether mm -hmm. it's like the death of a friendship 
um, or a period in one's life that one has trouble letting go of is that um, I think we we exacerbate pain when we try to hold on to something that could never have stayed forever anyway. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I used to take the the loss of like relationships or friendships a lot harder because mm. I was looking at it from the perspective of, well, why can't this stay the same? Like, <laughs> why why does this friendship have to die? Or why does this relationship have to not work out? And I would yeah. be so upset and, and angry with the loss. And I, I would think so much about, well, why can't this be this other way? You know, mm -hmm. and, and being in that frame of mind of wishing it could be different disallowed me from appreciating what I did have, right? So to put it another way, my parents have these two dogs. These two miniature schnauzers, right? Um, Mickey and Teddy there. It's the second time you've mentioned dogs in the podcast. And I like you more every time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dog guy. Yeah. Um, I, I love them to death. I, I oftentimes feel like a big golden retriever myself. <laughs> and um, they have these two dogs, miniature schnauzers, Mickey and Teddy, the brothers. They're both uh, 11 now. And Teddy um, was recently diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer, right? Mm -hmm. Cancer was the same thing that took... Uh, the dog that I, I grew up with, another miniature mm -hmm. schnauzer named Buddy, who passed away around 10 and uh, a half. Current dog's name is Buddy. There you go. It's a good name. Yeah. And, um, you know, although I'm not as close with Mickey and Teddy as my parents are, because they live with them every single day, and I only see them a mm -hmm. few times a year during holidays and other, other such events, it makes me think about, you know, one day when Charlie, who's four right now, he's lying right next to me, what's it going to be like when he goes, right? Or mm -hmm. my girlfriend has a, a dog, 14 years old, uh, a wonderful little gentleman named Darcy, <laughs> named from a character from her favorite book, Pride and Prejudice. And I have grown to really love that little guy. And I think to myself, like, well, you know, how am I going to feel when he goes, right? Whether it's this year, a couple years, five years from now, who knows, right? I, I can't know when he'll go. He's in great health right now, but who knows when it's going to happen. I think a few years ago, again, similarly in the same way that I would obsess over a friendship that had, for whatever reason, ended, whether just through organic, we've, we've kind of drifted away from one another, or they've moved to another state, or they have kids now, and so our relationship has changed. Friendship might not be over, but for all intents and purposes, it is because we don't talk anymore, right? I would mm -hmm. carry that stuff a lot harder, but one thing that I've really... I think gotten good at internalizing over the last several years, which I think has prepared me more for like the inevitability of death. Mm -hmm. It's not that I won't be sad, but I will focus more instead on being grateful for the time that I was given with that person or with that yeah. animal or with that friendship or relationship or whatever it is. And so again, to circle back to something I said earlier, Josh, what I try to focus on is not the events. I, I don't have any control really over the things that happen to me, I only have control over how I feel about them. And so when my parents' dog, Teddy, eventually passes from the cancer that he has, or my girlfriend's dog, Darcy, goes, or Charlie, my dog, goes hopefully 10 or 15 years from now, or when I lose a family member, like, you know, I don't want to say anyone specifically, but there are a couple people in my life who who are probably not long for this world. When they do go, um, I hope that I am able to focus on the gratitude that I will have had and have 
for the time I was blessed to be with them rather than obsess over the time that I could have never gotten with them in the first place. And so that's what I, again, try to focus on being grateful for the time I was given with that person or with that relationship or with that animal rather than wishing I could have had more, which again is something not within my control. And I think as I've gotten older and I've understood how few things in life I have control over, I am able to really embrace the one thing that I do have control over, um, which is wisdom as old as the Stoics. It's thousands of years old. Um, I have control over how I feel. And and that's been really instrumental for me. Yeah. The last years have really taught me the fragility of life and success in general. You know, it's watching some of my family members pass away from, you know, with Alzheimer's and really seeing their mind deteriorate is it's pretty gut-wrenching, to be honest. It's, you know, one minute they're there and then the next minute you can see them, you can touch them, but it's not them, you know, and it it's, it's pretty heart-wrenching. Um, and the same thing, you know, can be said of success. You know, it's, you're living at the, on top until you're not, you know, it, it can take a split second for everything to change. And so it kind of really helped me appreciate you know, time I have with people, the success I've had, even with the brand in general, with the podcast, Edge of Productions and everything, the success we had with the, the podcast, with our Twitch channel when I was streaming every day, all the people coming in, uh, spending time talking to me, like, why, why are you, why are you here watching me? Why are you here talking to me? You know, I, I have really tried to do everything I can to let people know how much I've appreciated it. And how much uh, I value it because it's it's not something everyone gets to experience. So I know I'm incredibly fortunate and uh, it, it's something I've really tried to not take for granted. Yeah. No, there's something so, for lack of a better word, there's something so powerful about non-familial relationships because they are at their very essence relationships that only exist because you choose them into existence. Mm-hmm. You know, like we can't choose our family, right? And now that doesn't mean that being a, uh, being the member of a family isn't work, you know, like being a good father or a good mother or a good brother, sister, son, daughter, um, that is work if you want to be a good one. Um, but you don't choose who your family members are, but we do choose who our friends are. We do choose the people we watch on Twitch, uh, yeah. or the people who watch, you know, the people who watch us, what we, we end up doing, we, we choose the guests we want to bring on. So when a relationship exists purely from the act of choosing, I think that um, it, it's so meaningful, you know, like there's, it's, it's, it's almost in some ways more meaningful than familial relationships. Not of course that familial relationships aren't intensely meaningful. And there is a bond of family that transcends a non-familial relationship, but what a non-familial relationship has that a familial one does not is the act that every single day, because you are not blood related, that there, there is technically no reason that you have to see this person over and over again. The choosing makes that powerful. And that's something that I, that I really enjoy thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, man. Very well said. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. It's life is, uh, fascinating. So I try to make the most of it. Being able to talk with so many different people on the show here and have all these different experiences is something I'm very grateful for. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, Appreciated you coming on tonight too, very much so. I know we're of course. a little bit short on time here, 
<laughs> but yeah, no, I appreciate you making the time. And if, if I may ask you one final question, Josh, sure. Um, you know, you seem like an, an ambitious guy. You've been doing this podcast for, I think by the time our episode comes out, you'll have just celebrated a little under a month ago, the third year anniversary of the show, which yeah. started February 26, 2020. You released six episodes that day. So I guess my question is, is because the show has grown so much over time and you've expanded the area of top area of topics that you've talked about, and you've expanded, I think in many ways, your ambitions for the show, where would you like to see the show go next as we head into 2023 and even 2024? Sure. Yeah, no, this year in particular, uh, obviously had a little bit of a hiccup at the start of the year here, starting the new job and everything like that. It's kind of put a wrench into my schedule, but uh, I just, I just want to grow the podcast in general and I want to grow the the brand as a whole. I want to be able to put out more content. I want to really focus in on the things I'm passionate about, which is the podcast, uh, making video content and then my writing, you know, I've put a ton of time and effort into my writing and I'm proud of what I've accomplished. Uh, I want to, when I say this, I just mean in the general sense, I'd like to publish something. I'd like to at least put it out there for people to read. Uh, so I, I'm not expecting to walk into Penguin Books and getting a novel published or anything, but I'd like to get actual my, my actual work out there for people to read, get feedback on, um, and like I said, just continuous steps towards that end goal of self-employment because I want to put myself in a position where I can work for myself and my my family as opposed to working just to make somebody else happy and successful. Well, I think that's a hell of a goal. And yeah. I wish you the best in pursuit of it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And again, can't, can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed our, our conversation. Well, thank you. It's a mutual pleasure, Josh. Very good. Why don't you, before <laughs> we wrap, why don't you tell people where they can go to check out all your stuff? Yeah, well, you can learn more and listen to um, Where We Go Next at wherewegonext.com. Or just look for Where We Go Next wherever you get your podcasts. Whatever your podcast player is, just type in Where We Go Next. The show releases every other week on Tuesday. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't even have anyone booked yet or March. So when this episode comes out, who knows who I'll be talking to. But I do know that by the time that this episode comes out, I will have spoken with two um, – I will have done two episodes that I'm intensely excited about, which I'm recording this week. One is with the uh, the CEO and lead scientist of a company called Colossal. Colossal specializes in um, the bioscience of de-extinction. Specifically, they're looking to bring back animals that have gone extinct mm-hmm. and bring them back with um, genome engineering. Um, one of the first ones they're aiming to do, I think the first one they're aiming to do, is to bring back the woolly mammoth. And the other guest that I'm really looking forward to is uh, a wonderful writer by the name of Tim Urban. Um, listeners might be familiar with his work on his website, waitbutwhy.com. And he has a book coming out um, that I have been reading, and I will be talking to him about that book. I have been a fan of his since probably somewhere around 2013, 2014, almost a decade now. He's one of my favorite writers. Um, he's how I discovered the idea of the Fermi paradox. Um, if, if anyone's unfamiliar with the Fermi paradox, it tries to answer the question, um, since we know that there are so many planets just in our galaxy that could or should sustain intelligent or even hyper-intelligent alien life, 
the Fermi paradox tries to answer where the hell are all the aliens? And mm -hmm. the way that Tim writes, the way that he explores topics, everything from something like the Fermi paradox to the Iraq war, to politics, to the science of procrastination, and so many other topics is he does these incredibly deep dives, researches topics intensively, and then writes an essay about that topic that is usually quite long. The Fermi paradox essay might be 50 to 60,000 words, like little kind of mini novels, yeah. but they're heavily sourced, incredibly easy to understand. And he does these fun, adorable little stick drawings uh, that he uses to illustrate the complexities of this topic in a really easy to digest way. So I'm incredibly excited to talk with him. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm really blessed to be doing this show. And I hope to anyone who's listening to this conversation that if we go to wherewegonext.com or listen to the podcast in their podcast player, that they get something out of it. Because that is ultimately, as I'm sure you're familiar with, Josh is a fellow podcast host. I think that's really all I can ask for as a host, like that I will have done my job that if you like an episode of the show, um, that that then that is the reward for me. So mm -hmm. thank you in advance to anyone who does go check out the podcast. And thanks to anyone who's listened to me jabber on today. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Go check out his show where we go next and go check out deadjustproductions.live links are in the description links to everything is in the description including our sponsors g95 apparel and surfshark thank you very much to them thank you very much michael i appreciate you stopping by really had a great time and thank we'll you so much josh next time bye